Um, let me add my welcome to George's. It's lovely to see you here today, uh, especially if you're a guest with us. We, do, we have two very special guests who I can't help but say. So my brother is here with his wife, Jess, and you may recognise them from the Word Alive videos. Um, they were part of the band, so if there's that vague familiar thing, um, that's where it's from. Let me pray as we start, let me pray for us. Lord, I praise you that we can come together, that we can sit down and look at your words and hear from you. And I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be for you. And Lord, today that we would be living for you, that we would learn something about how to live for you, that we would honour you with what we're doing here. And it wouldn't just be for today, but it would carry on for the rest of our walk with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've been on quite a busy journey over Easter. We started off with our pre-Easter video about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We had our our, uh, Last Supper Bible study. We had our Good Friday reflections. And then our Easter Sunday celebration of the resurrection. And today we're going to be looking at the next step of Jesus' journey. The ascension, which is Jesus' supernatural return to heaven to be with his Father. And you'll notice, you may have noticed I've taken liberties with the timing. If you look at verse 3, it tells us that he was, after he was raised, Jesus was with them for 40 days. Now, I think Rob would probably forget in 40 days, so we're going to do it now instead while he's on holiday. That's, that's why we're looking at the ascension today. Have you ever come across someone with a big presence? Someone you just can't help notice? Someone you kind of you would automatically stop talking and look when they enter the room. I went to one of those great middle class institutions known as a boys' grammar school. And our headmaster was just like that. He would walk down a corridor full of rowdy, testosterone filled boys, and silence would fall while everyone frantically checked their uniforms and checked their top buttons were done up. He would enter an assembly hall with hundreds of chattering boys and everyone would stand up in silence. And when he spoke, he had a deep, booming voice. He used to say, boys, you just listened. You listened when he spoke. And even once he'd gone, even once he left the assembly hall, left the corridor, things didn't quite get back to normal. You never knew when he might reappear, when he might come back. And Jesus would have had a big presence too when he came back after the resurrection. In those 40 days after he rose, imagine him walking into a room full of his followers. There would have been silence as people turned and looked at the guy they'd seen nailed to a cross a few days before. They would have gasped in awe as he spoke to his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God, probably not in a deep, booming voice, but they would have listened, they would have hung on his words. But that physical presence of Jesus... It wasn't going to last. Jesus' rightful place was about to be in heaven with his father, at his father's right hand. However, even once he'd gone, things were going to be different. He was still going to be with them by his spirit. And we never know when he's going to return. So we're going to follow Jesus today. Through this passage in Acts, the Bible is all about Jesus, and today that's going to be really nice and easy to see. We're going to look at, firstly, 
his physical presence with the disciples. That's what we see here. Secondly, his spiritual presence with all followers. And thirdly, the hope of his physical return. And the big thing that I want us to see is that it's Christ's spiritual presence with us that gives us power to witness about the great hope we have in his physical return. It's Christ's spiritual presence with us that gives us power to witness about the great hope we have in his physical return. Got that? Good. So, to start with, I think it would be helpful to do a kind of quick surface level overview of God's presence in the Bible up to this point. And we can start in the Garden of Eden, right? Where God dwelt with Adam and Eve. He created Adam and Eve and he dwelt with them. We know this because in Genesis chapter 3, it says that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God's desire was to dwell, or to, to tabernacle as we can call it, with his people. But that privilege is lost during the fall when sin enters this when sin enters the world. God is good and cannot dwell with the sinful people. So this barrier of sin between God and man is brought into the world. And then through the Old Testament, God is only accessible to his people through the priests. And even then, only because this barrier is continuously being paid for by the sacrifice of animals. We saw it when we looked at Joshua 3. I don't know if you remember. Who went ahead of the Israelites? It was the priests. The priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the River Jordan. They went ahead of his people, and that was representing God's presence. Later on in the Old Testament, we see Solomon. He builds this big temple, and the presence of God comes down and fills it. But still that access is limited. Only the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwells, and even then only only once a year, and after a lot more sacrifices. So God is with his people, but there's always a distance between them, a barrier. But God's plan was to fix this problem, right? Even before the beginning, his great plan of salvation, a solution that means that he can once more dwell with his people without this great chasm or barrier of, of sin. And so we start the New Testament, where this plan starts picking up pace. We see the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God's presence came to earth through Jesus the Messiah. Came to save his people and restore them to God through the atonement of sin. To break down that barrier once and for all. And Jesus, he lives a perfect life. And he has people, specifically his close followers, his disciples, who learn from him and bask in his presence. But then Jesus dies and is taken from them at the hands of the Romans. We saw this on Good Friday and we know that this is a good thing. We know it's an incredible sacrifice for our good. But think about his disciples. How would they have felt? Their master taken away from them. Devastated? Probably. Let down? Possibly. How was God going to dwell with his people if God with us, Emmanuel, was dead? But they didn't have to feel this for long. We know that Jesus rose, that Jesus rose, and this is where we find ourselves in his passage today. So first of all, let's look at, in, in more detail at Jesus' physical presence with his disciples. Let's read again those first seven verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, the first book is referring to Luke. Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts. So in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. 
After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. So verse 3 is a summary from Luke, right? Verse 3, Jesus is back. He's dwelling with his disciples again, speaking to them about the kingdom of God. They must have been overjoyed. Their Messiah, who had been taken from them and nailed to a cross by the Romans, was back with them, teaching them again, leading them in his perfect way. But still they don't understand. I don't know if you remember when we looked at Matthew, the number of times the disciples didn't understand Um, For example, in in Matthew 18, we looked at them asking who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, because they just didn't get it. And it's happening again here. So verse 6, they come together on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Uh Uh-uh. Wrong question again, disciples. In their thinking, it's all about the physical, right? In their thinking, Jesus is back with them, so now must be the time for the great physical restoration of Israel, a great physical restoration of God's people. Surely, Jesus, now is the time to get rid of all these horrible Romans, bring a great plague upon them. Surely, Jesus, now people have seen your risen, see how great you are, we can get together a great army and go and fight the Romans and drive them out of Jerusalem. They still don't understand the kingdom of God. They think it's just a physical thing. And I think this can be a problem for us as well. We can get caught up in the physical. We want want tangible things to happen. We can get over-focused on signs and wonders, on miracles in church, on speaking in tongues. Things that aren't bad, but if we focus on them too much, we're, we're looking at the wrong thing. We get caught up that God is only relevant in our church building when we're physically meeting. Or in the events we do as a church. We can be obsessed with pictures or images of God. Thinking that somehow if we have a statue of Jesus dying on a cross. It makes us even stronger. makes his presence with us stronger. (coughs) Or even like the disciples. Christians can always be thinking about when's the new heaven and new earth going to come. Even, I don't remember if there was this church in America a couple of years ago, and the pastor was predicting the day and the hour that Jesus was going to come again. Jesus makes it clear to us and his disciples where we are to stand when it comes to the future. Look at his reply to their question in verse 7. He says to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his authority. Jesus is saying to them, Don't get caught up in the future. These things are in the hands of my Father. The kingdom of God is not about daydreaming about what's to come. Power is not found in the physical signs and wonders of God's people. Power is not found in speculating about when God is going to come again. But, as we're going to see in verse 8, this is where power is found. This is what we need to focus on. So secondly, we're going to look at Jesus' spiritual presence for all his followers. 
Let me read verse 7 and 8 again, or read with me. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples, they wanted the power of an army. Jesus said, I can do better than that. Here is a promise of power from the Holy Spirit. The promise of my power living inside of you. Notice the conjunction in the sentence. The conjunction is when. This is not something that's happened yet, but it is something that disciples will need to wait for. If you look at verse 4 or 5, it also says that, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, from which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Praise God, this is not the case for us. In fact, in the next chapter, Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit comes down on his people. And I think there's a danger of creating a culture of waiting for the Holy Spirit to come up, to turn up. And we don't need to. The Holy Spirit has come, promised by Jesus. When you trust in him, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what being a Christian is about. He's delivered at Pentecost, so the when has taken place. It was when for the disciples, not for us. But notice as well the certainty of it. It says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. It's not if. It's not you might. It's when. It's will. It will happen. And that's encouraging for the disciples. They know it's going to happen. And we know it has happened. Jesus is always true to his promises. He's not going to leave his followers behind empty-handed when he goes back to heaven. Now, this power has a purpose. Look again at verse 8. What will the Holy Spirit give power to do? Jesus' command is that you will be witnesses. Power to spread the gospel. Power to make the name of Jesus known. Where? Well, Jerusalem. That's locally to them. In Judea and Samaria, nationally, and all the ends of the earth, internationally. It's the same vision we have as a church, right? We pray locally, we mission locally, nationally, and internationally. And it plays out really nicely in Acts. Um, the early church, when it starts its ministry, in the beginning of Acts, from chapter 1 to chapter 7, they do it in Jerusalem. And then God grows them, and they spread nationally to Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 to 12. And then after chapter 12 to the rest of the book, Paul and his followers are spreading to the ends of the earth. God's word, God spreads his word through his followers being witnesses. And we see the effects of this power through Acts as the early church witnesses. I'm just going to jump to some some places in Acts. So it's power from the Holy Spirit to devote themselves to God. Um, Chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 44 Um, It says, all who believed were together and had these things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceedings to all. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they devote themselves to God with this power from the Holy Spirit. They speak boldly with this power from the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the temple council. Um, Chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up before them and he speaks. He declares Jesus to them. Look at the response in in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognised they had been with Jesus. The power of Jesus inside them giving them boldness and people are astonished at them. Um, they, they have the power of the Holy Spirit gives them um, the ability to heal the sick, healing from sickness and disease and praying for healing from people. And it also gives them gifts for ministry, and we see that through, through all the New Testament. But specifically, when, when the Holy Spirit comes down, he fills them up and gives them power to speak in tongues so that other cultures can understand the gospel. Not in their own strength, but in the power of the Spirit. So as Christians, we have this power living inside us. When we put our faith in him, we have this power to do what? To enable us to be witnesses. Leave the timing of the return of God's kingdom to God. He's got that sorted. Let's focus on sharing the gospel with the power he's given us. As Christians, God will give us all we need to make his name known. Whether we're out door knocking, whether we're witnessing to our neighbour across gardens, whether we're on the street, God will give us what we need to make his name known. And the wonder of the Holy Spirit is that as Jesus lives the earth, no longer with his disciples, he doesn't take his presence of God away with him. He doesn't carry it back to the Father. There's not going to be a return of that barrier in the Old Testament. The barrier of sin, Jesus finished that. That's why the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus leaves, this is what he leaves behind. God's presence is going to dwell with his church. Not a building. His people. God's people with God's presence. And Jesus does leave. Let's look at how that unfolds in verse 9. Flick back. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. A cloud? This is no ordinary cloud. This is not your standard cumulus nimbus. This is God's Shekinah glory cloud. God's presence surrounded by a cloud of his glory. It's the same cloud that came down on Mount Sinai when Moses went to speak to God. God has come to collect his son in the cloud limo. How do the disciples respond? Look at verse 10. They gaze into heaven. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Imagine them, right? Gazing into heaven, staring up at the sky. Where has their leader gone? Their Emmanuel, God with us, has just disappeared again. Now, it shouldn't shouldn't entirely be a surprise to the disciples. Jesus had told them it was going to happen. In John chapter 14, he he tells them this is going to happen. But, you imagine, to have the one who has already been taken from them once, has come back to them, and has been there everything for 40 days. You can imagine they must have been pretty heartbroken. Imagine them gazing into the sky. Confused, sad looks on their faces. Wondering if Jesus is coming back to them, feeling empty, saying to each other, maybe he's just gone for a quick chat with his father and then he's coming back to us. But they don't get that. They don't get Jesus returning. But what they do get is a couple of angels. 
And so thirdly, we're going to look at what the angels say to them. So thirdly, we're going to look at the hope of Jesus' physical return. The hope of Jesus' physical return. Let's have a look at what these angels say in verse 11. They say to the men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The angels refocus these disciples. What are you doing staring into the sky, they say. They turn their focus from the empty sky to God's plan of salvation for mankind. Now is not the time for gazing into the sky, wondering when Jesus will return. Why not? Well, the angels say it's because he will return. Right, Rob is currently on holiday. I'm sure he's having a smashing time, I'm sure. Let's say before he left, he set us a task. He said to us, church, I want you to clear the allotment. Okay, I want you to clear my allotment. And we know, we know God willing that Rob is going to come back from holiday, right? We know that. Now imagine while he was away, that we spent the whole time outside his house, standing, waiting for him to come back. Imagine that. We know, Rob is coming back, he set us a task, but actually we're going to go and wait, we're going to go walk down the road, after church, after he's left, and we're going to stand outside his house. Now imagine Charles would get pretty freaked out by that. If we were constantly staring, looking at, looking at the house. I imagine his neighbours would, would think it was pretty strange. And I don't even want to think about like, the logistics of toilets and things like that. It would be bizarre. But also, it would be a complete failure of the task that Rob had set us. Rob has told us to clear the allotment. And we're spending the whole time waiting for him to come back outside his house. We know Rob is coming back. We have that hope. So while we're waiting, we can get on and complete the task that he's left for us, using the power tools that he's gifted us. He left us some power tools, I forgot to say that. Barry might say, oh, just one more day standing outside his house, please. But Rob might come back tomorrow, and we haven't finished the task that he set us. The allotment would still be covered in weeds. So the disciples have a task to do. We have a task to do. It's not clear the allotment. It's the Great Commission, right? We've already seen it in verse 8, and we know it from Matthew as well. Matthew 28, it says, Go therefore, Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We know he's coming again. And we know from verse 7 to leave the timing of that to God. We know as believers who have the same power living in us that raised Christ from the grave, that the Holy Spirit will help us to witness for him. (coughs) We need to make sure that we're not sky gazing, that we're not spending all this time waiting for the world to end and a new one to start. I'm not saying that we can't think about that at all. There is a right place for longing for God's kingdom to come on earth. There's a right place for longing for heaven. But if that's where our hope lies, if that's where all our hope lies, and if that's where our focus is, then we've got it wrong. God has given us his presence to equip us to be witnesses. Witnesses sharing the good news of Jesus and the hope of his return. He commissions us that in the power of his spirit, we should go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we spend all our time metaphorically gazing up at the sky, then we're going to be rubbish at being a witness, and we're going to fail our task. 
Billy Graham is famous for saying, my home is in heaven, I'm just passing through this world. And for those of us who are Christian, that's an amazing truth. That we are saved into God's family by the blood of Jesus to one day be with him. But if we think passing through this world means ignoring everyone else in it who needs to be saved, then we've got the wrong end of the stick. Beckentry Church, we are called to witness in Beckentry and in all Barking and Dagenham and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus left us his power to do it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's think a little bit more about how this applies to us. That's not the end, sorry. That's not the end. If you're not a Christian, then I want to ask you, where is your hope? What are you living for? We know that life ends in death. And if you don't believe in Jesus, then this barrier of sin is still between you and God. And sadly, the Bible tells us that means when you face death, you face eternal judgment in hell. That's not much of a hope. And an earthly hope of, I don't know, a new car or a better house or a better job, that's not going to help you here. But we want to share with you today to witness to you a greater hope, the hope of Jesus who says, if you confess the wrong things you have done and trust in him, he will forgive you. That's what he accomplished by his death and resurrection, the once for all payment for this barrier of sin. And if you believe in him, he will be waiting for you to welcome you into this everlasting kingdom that will never perish, spoil or fade. I want to read just a little bit of Revelation that just that tells us what this kingdom is going to be like. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 21. This is a vision. God gave, God gave John a vision of what his new kingdom is going to be like. And this is a little bit of it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea is a picture of death, destruction. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned from her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. Now that's what I call hope. And that's freely forgiven to us to accept. If you go to church on Sunday but maybe aren't living for Jesus, then what part do you play in being a witness at church? It's very easy being part of a church to be involved in church activities. But if these activities involve witnessing, then if you're not a Christian, without the power of Jesus inside of you, they're just empty tasks. It would be like trying to clear the allotment with just your hands and using no power tools. We wouldn't get anywhere. Wouldn't it be far better to be able to witness for Christ with his power inside of you? To make serving mean something, to trust in him, to act on what you hear in church. And to set your hope in heaven. And I pray that you would do that. And for those of us who are Christian, I want to challenge us. Where do we look for our power to witness? As a small group, um, we read a really helpful book called Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. And it talked about how our idols get in the way of us talking about Jesus. There's a danger that we can look at our theological knowledge. We think we need to be really clued up on the ins and outs of the Bible in order to be a good witness. 
We can think that we need to be a good talker. To have good persuasive skills. To bring someone around to the argument of, of knowing about and wanting to follow Jesus. Or we can think about, we can look at our track record and say, oh no, I've brought three Christians to church. How many of you? We can look at our status in the church. What's it for you? Where's your power? Where are you looking to your power for witnessing? Well, what we've seen so clearly is that that power comes from God dwelling inside us by his spirit. For those of us who are proud, me included, that's a humbling thing. For those of us who feel inadequate and weak, like we don't have the words, that's a comfort. It doesn't matter who we are. In fact, Rico says in his book, in one of the chapters, that we can just be ourselves when we evangelise. It's God that does the work of changing people's hearts. And he didn't promise it would be easy. It wasn't easy for the disciples. Peter ended up crucified, upside down. John was beheaded by Herod. But he did promise the power to do it. So finally, to finish, how are we going to respond now? Well, we can learn from the disciples. I just want to look at the last two verses. Let's read verse, let's read verse 12 to 14 back in Acts. So Jesus, they've just been told by the angels, Jesus is coming back in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. What were they doing? Verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They traveled back to Jerusalem. They gathered together, waiting for the Holy Spirit, and they pray. They turn their eyes to the Father. So let's do that now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your power living inside of us. I thank you that Jesus, when he, when he went back to be with you, didn't, didn't leave us empty-handed. But that his spirit can live inside of us. And I pray, Lord, that we would find our power to speak of you, not in ourselves, not in the things that we can do or not do, but in you. That you would be giving us opportunities to witness for your name. To bring people who haven't, haven't yet heard of you into your kingdom. Thank you for your power to do that, Lord. Help us this week to witness for you in your power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Oh,